Invisible Soldiers podcast. Welcome to the Invisible Soldiers podcast. I'm Corey. I'm Rebecca. And this is our inaugural podcast to uh, kick off this whole thing. Welcome. Welcome in, everyone. Woo! So, okay, let's get into Invisible Soldiers. Rebecca and I have been meeting for about the past year, talking about creating a platform where we could have conversations about people in the industry, Black people in the industry who don't get the shine that maybe they deserve, but also just kind of gaining insight into the perspective that they have. From my point of view, an invisible soldier is somebody who is on the front lines in advertising and they are stewards of the culture. They protect the culture. They protect the image of Black people everywhere. And they kind of do it with little to no fanfare. The public don't know they exist. And oftentimes, largely people even in the industry don't know that they exist. So this is a space to shed light on those people, to bring them on, to hear their insights, to talk about the challenges both now and historically of Blacks in advertising and really just kind of open it up to have some conversation. I love that. And you are absolutely right. What they don't know is the amount of hours, to your point, over the last year, maybe even year and a half of us really trying to get into this topic and conversation and and create a space for us to be here. An invisible soldier to me, especially as I listen to young people today who are eager to enter, whether it's entertainment, music, or advertising, is really, how do you do it? What's it like? Am I even there, to your point and what you uh, connected on in terms of who's visible versus who is invisible? We are a pretty strong group of, I think they would call us old heads now, (laughs) or OGs, who have been in this world and in this matrix and have built some amazing marketing things that have been manifested, whether it's TV, radio, or print. But how do we do it? What's it like to be there? What's it like to see ourselves? How do we put ourselves in the narrative? And to be honest, how do you navigate just the day-to-day functions of it? And so I'm really excited to be able to shed some light and to show the journeys of so many, to be honest, so many that have either been in rooms or I've walked by offices and been very surprised to see a face that reflected my own image. And so I'm excited for us to be able to bring that to to everyone in the industry. I think that there'll be a, a real thirst for knowledge and understanding on how to do things. And specifically today, I think we'll talk a little bit about what it's like to be a creative director, what it's like to get a job, all of those things I'd love to be able to bring to an audience that craves this. Yeah, I know I know we both consider ourselves invisible soldiers along with a lot of our peers. But I'd like to ask you, are there any invisible soldiers who along the way in your life kind of inspired you, made you want to follow in those footsteps? A hundred percent. So I would love to give flowers to Frida Roberson. She right, clap, 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 clap. She is a woman that actually both Corey and I know from our days at uh, Campbell Ewald, an agency in Detroit. We were the agency of record for Chevy, a very small group of specifically Black marketers, whether you were creative or you were a strategist, were at this agency at one time. And we had an executive by the name of Frida who had already put in 20 plus years 
something that was really rare for us. Because what was that? It had to be around. It was early 2000. Yeah, I think it was like 2000. And it was like at the point, a lot of things were happening in culture around hip hop, music, sneaker culture, car culture. What I had witnessed with her being in a position of power specifically around multicultural marketing was her ability to build a team. So I watched her bring in some very good friends to this day to work on the account side, the creative side, and as a person inside of people operations. Today, I was just impressed that she had an opportunity to bring some people along the way. At one point, I actually interviewed with her because I thought I would move from, I think I was working on Chevy Retail at the time or OnStar, but an opportunity to work on creative, again, that reflected my culture or what, again, reflects my own vision of myself was really important. And so I went to meet with her and she opened the door in terms of what to expect inside of what multicultural marketing means inside of a general market. But ultimately, what I loved about her is not only was she trying to build a small team, but she reached out to all of us inside of the agency who were of color, who were feeling a way inside of a general market agency and, and would meet with us regularly about challenges that we were facing and built a community. And so for a brief moment, it almost felt like a real magical of stars aligning when we were at CE. I felt very safe inside of a, a community that, again, reflected what I needed in order to be nurtured and grow. So Frida is no longer with us. We did lose her, but she's definitely, she was a, a marketer that could go toe-to-toe with anyone in that building. But even more than that, she was an advocate for herself and I think for, for us as well. Yeah, I came into a department that was largely senior and as a junior, as the only Black creative, and there wasn't a lot of mentorship. So Frida was on the office right above me. I mean, on the floor right above me. And, you know, I would hang out in her office and share my frustrations. And, you know, she literally mentored me at a time when I, I just didn't have any. That was always a topic that we worked for was to create some mentorship, especially for people who, you know, minorities coming in who could get lost in the shuffle. She was really dedicated to that. I saw it with myself and, and other people, not to mention all of the very hard conversations had in boardrooms about just our image messaging that didn't align or might be offensive to one segment of people, but not to a broader segment of people. Those are those qualities that make somebody an invisible soldier, you know, for me. So she was one. Also, I was very lucky to grow up in a household with my dad, who had a 45-year career in advertising. That's crazy in general. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So I got to see the ins and outs of what it was like for him from like the 70s all the way up and the challenges and, you know, and hear about it, the uncensored version, but also get a chance to meet black copywriters and black art directors as a, as a little kid, you know, his perspective for sure. Maybe want to follow in these footsteps, but also, you know, have a really strong desire to protect our image, to elevate it, to create messaging that not only we can relate to, but that is also aspirational and paints us in the best light. 
Love it. I love it. Cheers to our invisible soldiers and cheers to us. And there are so many out there and we plan to uh, share a lot of the ones that we know and hopefully be introduced to new ones. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Let's get into your story, Rebecca, since you and I are going to be hosting. And this first episode is really just an intro to us, an intro to what we're trying to accomplish here. But let's get into your story. How did you get into advertising? How did you stay in? <laughs> How did you survive to stay in it? And uh, what's going on with you right now? Yeah, absolutely. So to be honest with you, this was a very intentional career. Like a lot of people say, like, I did not plan on it or I wasn't looking for it. But I think that's probably also a thing that we are simpatico is that it was very intentional. Like I knew that I wanted to do this. It came out of undergrad. I actually went to an HBCU. I went to Hampton University, the real HU, if anybody was considering what that meant. But I actually was in a marketing class and I kind of fell in love with just the marketing aspect or at least the idea of what marketing was based on a 101 class. And then somebody had passed me a job description for an account executive. So I personally have passion around business, but also creative personally, whether it's painting or music or design or fashion. And so at that point in my college career around junior year, I saw that job description for an account executive and it really captured the ability to have kind of a business acumen towards a creative product. And so after I finished at Hampton, I went back to Detroit, Michigan. It was the late 90s, not to date myself, but that was a time when there was so many ad dollars moving in the automotive space. And so there were dozens and dozens of dozens of ad agencies, major shops in Detroit in the late 90s, all through the 80s. Obviously, if you watch Mad Men, some of the agencies that we've been to make an appearance there. So going home to Detroit made a lot of sense. I tried to work at an agency called Don Coleman and Associates. It was like, at least my understanding of how it looked was like Boomerang, because it was also a movie that I saw as a young person that influenced me. And I did not get in. It was really cutthroat there and I did not have the chops. And so I actually went to McCann Eric's in Detroit. I faxed my resume in and I started my life as a traffic coordinator working on Buick and Delphi at the time. I fell in love with the routing process. That was really an amazing experience to be able to move creative product to get approval through all of the humans that touched an ad. So like having a front row seat to all the creative directors, the writers, the print producers, like having firsthand relationships to move something through an agency and know how it works operationally was just such an amazing place to be. At least that's what I, you know, as a young person, I thought kind of coming into that world. From there, I thought I wanted to be a print producer just because of what we were doing every day. I'm sure People don't know what that means anymore, just because this was pre-internet, if you can imagine. So getting a placement in the New York Times tomorrow morning for a major automotive brand was a big deal. Like you might have to drive some film to the airport back in the day. So it was, it was a very exciting time. So I thought I would do that, but I ended up going into account management, worked on everything from Chevy to McDonald's. I started meeting with younger people, not to say that I was older, but I started to notice there was definitely, the door was open to connect with the younger people on my team. And so just kind of organically working through how do you deal with 
difficult personality. So doing a bit of mentorship, I guess I would say. And then before I knew it, HR had kind of caught wind of that and those relationships. And they started asking me to do presentations for interns and talk to them about what it what it was like to work in the business. And then that kind of parlayed into, hey, do you want to do some college recruiting? So I came out of the business at Kimberly Wald, this was, and went into HR as a recruiter. And then in the early 2000s, like 2003, 2004, this word diversity started to float around because the Human Rights Commission had been sued for their unfair hiring practices on Madison Avenue in the late 90s. And so they were working through how can they have more, we use the word equity now, but back then it was how can we increase our diversity? And so it just became this huge conversation. And this was in 2003. So not very different at the time, the, uh, the industry, all of those agencies had to provide their numbers, like who works there. And it was always around two or 3% in terms of our representation for black people, also for women, very low, obviously for any other community was non-existent, but we were usually hovering around one to 3%, usually 0% in the leadership roles. And I have to say that after 20 years, not much has changed, right? I would say that the work has gotten more melanated and more cultural, but it's not necessarily done by us. And so through the last 20 years, I've moved around agencies as a people leader. So building teams and being very intentional, working with my hiring managers to make sure that not only do we consider people of color, but we hire them, we nurture them, and we help them become really strong leaders. And so I did that for a really long time in general market agencies. And just recently, over the last 12 months, I found myself at a small multicultural shop on the West Coast and super happy to be there because I believe that we are now in a position to be able to tell our own stories. And I think that we also need to do that in the space of our own media dollars. So all that to say is that my goal of coming into this business to work on it I was able to manifest that. And then it grew even larger into making sure that we take care of the people that are here. So as I still grow, I still have aspirations. Like I know that eventually I'd like to be a chief people officer, which I tell everyone is like, you know, you have to continue to push and stretch yourself. But ultimately I, I have a passion for making sure that people that look like us, I mean, all people are welcome, but specifically in this industry to make sure that we have opportunities to grow and to tell our stories accurately and in our own voice. So that's a little bit about how I got here. Wow. I've never heard your whole story. And uh, wow, that was enlightening. I think, yeah, you know, advertising is such a tough business to crack that uh, I think hearing those stories of how people got in are really important. I know, I know. You please tell us yours. I, I don't know the whole thing, but it always it always cracks me up. I love it so much. Please tell us. Set the scene, Corey. <laughs> okay. Well, I would say I've always known I was a writer. Right. The best definition I've heard for a writer is an organizer of thoughts, and so I've always been fascinated by things I heard. I've always had a visceral response to reading a good line or even hearing it from somebody. I remember as early as like fourth grade, I remember uh, the song Roxanne, Roxanne came out and everybody wanted to know the lyrics to the song. And as just a group of friends, like in fourth grade class, we would all, we started a, a notebook chain and certain people knew parts of the song and other wait, people- Wait, 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 what's a notebook chain? Oh, well, it was just a, it was a note, a, 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 a sheet of notebook paper, right? 
And somebody started writing the lyrics and they wrote as many as they could kind of remember of a first verse. And then they passed it to somebody else. And we passed this sheet of paper around. And by the time we were done, we had the entire song. And then we started like copying it ourselves because everybody wanted their own copy of it. And we, everybody learned that song, you know, and that was just the power of words, like how it affected not only me, but obviously my whole class. And hip hop was was really important part of that. So I knew I wanted to be a writer. I was growing up in a home where my dad, I'm watching him go to work every day. I'm looking at my block and on my block, I'm seeing, you know, it was a black neighborhood in St. Louis. And so there are men who wear suits and ties on our block. There are men who wear uniforms to go to work. And then there are people who wear name tags. This is like, you know, I'm watching what all these different dads, how they go to work. And my dad is wearing like jeans and cool leather jackets and boots. And I'm just like, dude, like this don't really make sense. Like you look like you're going to the club versus a job, you know? So that was always in my mind. Like my dad wear, can wear jeans to work. That was always in my mind, you know, and he travels, you know? So as I grew older, I started trying to develop my writing a little more. I started getting into, um, and this is where him being who he was, having connections, I would be able to get my hands on um, screenplays of movies I like and connecting the dots between, oh, wow, like somebody wrote every word almost of what this is. Somebody not only laid out the story, but they wrote this. Like that was a huge light bulb moment. And then I started having it like every time I saw a billboard, like, Somebody wrote that. That didn't just pop up magically, right? That was a huge moment for me as well. I still didn't know I wanted to do advertising. I thought maybe screenplay writing or maybe directing or something. You know, I didn't know. By the time I got to college, I knew I was starting to lean a little more towards advertising. I majored in English, graduated from University of Missouri. After that, I went down to the Portfolio Center, (laughs) Atlanta, which is now Miami Ad School. And at the time, Portfolio Center was the school that you went to. I think they had like a two-year wait to get in when I applied. I got in, I think, after six months, luckily. And so I went down, graduated from there, and ended up in Detroit, of all places. And I probably would not have taken that job, except for the fact that my best friend took a job with the Free Press about six months before that. I took a, a trip for the interview up there just to see him. I was like, we're going to kick it, blah, blah, blah. I really wasn't taking the job that serious. But out of all the places I interviewed, they were the one place that said I could probably be producing TV within my first year. So I woke up and I was in advertising and it was like, oh, wow, this is real. And then you start to understand a little bit of the responsibility as a creative. You create things you're dreaming, you want to do something. But the minute you put it out in the world, it becomes very public. And no matter what you meant, it is now up for public interpretation. That struck me in a major way because I was like, whoa, not only could I see the positive sides of that, but there could be some kickback if I do it wrong, right? And these ads would come through every now and then. Now, now my, my department was probably around 30 creatives. I was the only black guy. 
but there would come around assignments for a Black History Month ad or a Kwanzaa ad. And I'm like, who? Okay, like, because it, it wasn't like, you know, oh, you're the Black guy, you're going to do this ad. But it was kind of like, I started going like, wait a minute, y'all going to let somebody other than me do this ad? <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I started asking for that stuff. And my, my boss was like, wait, hey, don't, don't feel like you have to do this. And, and almost like it was like, lesser work. And, and I saw it the other way. I saw it as like, no, 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 no. This is really important that we get this right. That started a little bit of a, a passion. If there were opportunities to create things for us, it meant even a little more because I knew the history of us being underserved and not always seeing the right messages and the right images. So that became a passion point with me. After nine and a half years of working on strictly general market work, I kind of crossed over into a little bit more of a multicultural space, learning what it means to target AA and Hispanic. Now, years later, like I've been in the 100% AA space for like the past six years. And so it really is a passion point. It really is a, I feel like it's a chance to right some old wrongs to take advantage of this really interesting, cool cultural time and really push the culture forward. That's really what it's about for me. Amazing. Amazing. What do you, you talked a little bit about it, about the ability to right the wrongs. So like over the last 20 years, or even like just in the last like six years, have you seen a shift in your ability to push the narrative the right way? Like, are you seeing the pendulum moving now that you're focused? No, absolutely. Black work has gotten so much edgier. The ability to be unapologetically Black at this time versus when I first got in in the game is just much different. The public consumption of, I would say, African-American culture and the acceptance. And, you know, hey, millennials get a lot of critique, but I would say the one thing that I think their generation has brought forward is just this undeniable desire to change what's wrong, you know? Now, there are some negative things that, you know, cancel culture and all of this stuff has, has popped up, but this undeniable desire to just to right the wrongs, I think, has even lit a fire in some of us Gen Xers who have kind of accepted the wrongs for a lot of years. Like, this is just how it is. We just going to like work harder to navigate around it because those were the lessons we got, right? We were raised by civil rights parents and their lessons were, it was about, you just got to be better. <laughs> it wasn't about changing the world around you. It was like, you got to be better. You got to be twice as good, right? And that's a very different thing versus, no, I, I don't have to be twice as good. Let's change the wrong stuff in the world. Like I said, kudos to that generation. I know in 2020, when everybody was out marching and stuff, I was blown away. I was out in the streets too with pick signs and screaming and yelling, but I was blown away by the number of non-Black people fighting for Black rights. Right. Yeah. Right. It, that's interesting. I look forward to, I hope we get to loop those conversations in about what that feels like, because that is a different experience for me. Like I, when, like we talk about like this word allyship because of being raised by a baby boomer, it is always just be better and navigate around it. 
Absolutely. So I assume I'm always running into it. And it was a complete flip of the switch in my mind to even consider non-Black people fighting for our rights. Like we saw it a little bit in the 60s, -hmm. right? But like this was different. I was in tech during all of that. So I was at a organ I was at LinkedIn. 10,000 people work there in the United States. Majority white, still only 3% black, which is such a small number. The Harvard Business Review says that a community only has a voice when they are at least at 30%. So it is difficult to have a voice or to even have a narrative when you're only 3%. And so I remember after the murder of George Floyd, you know, we were all remote. And so all the screens, you know, all the little boxes pop up, right? And I'm the only person of color in that room. And like, I had never seen like their own self-awareness, I guess, Mm -hmm. of what actually happened. That was a whole different experience because in the 90s, in the late 2000s, when the word diversity was born, we were just trying to consider that maybe there was a problem. (laughs) (laughs) right? Like, like I think about, you know, in my world, what I, I hope we can continue to do in these conversations, because you and I have had, we've been in the same place, had the same experience, but from different perspectives. So like thinking about how, like, I was a part of the actual, like, quote unquote, diversity trainings, like being inside those HR rooms, and then you as a creative having to come into these rooms, right? So like, how the work that we do inside of the people organization, how it actually really lands. Like, what's it like to go after we all hang out in a auditorium for two hours and talk about bias? What's it like to have to go back into the room as the only person of color after they've ingested all of that information? It's so different now. And to your point about the millennials, because I would we would go back and be like, all right, well, you know, kind of business as usual. But the millennials are saying like, no, we cannot do business as usual. Like we really need to, and to be honest, like I think for me, I'm, you know, I'm in it a hundred percent, but it is a different, it's a little scary <laughs> sometimes, you know, where that, it is it, a yeah. whole paradigm shift, but it is. It's necessary, right? Necessary. So millennials get, you know, the rap on millennials is they're soft, they're whiny. There is some truth to the whiny part, but I think, you know, what we kind of taught was to endure, just right, like bite your tongue. It doesn't matter how much blood you swallow, bite your tongue and take it and go back and take some more, right? And this group is like, I'm not taking it. It's like, wow, like we never really thought to think that. Ever. It's so impressive. So in my world right now, we are pushing around like pay equity, right? So like if you go look at job descriptions, they have the salary range. And like I work really hard with my team, our CFO, to make sure that we're paying attention to the data. So like we belong to the four A's. So, you know, they do salary analysis of all the agencies. And so we we try to have a little bit more transparency around that. I mean, it's still a little bit like, I'm not telling you all my cards, but like I'm trying to like keep pace because back in the day, right? Like you're a creative director or, you know, you were a a junior copywriter. I promised you there was some bias in those rooms and they were like, give him the bottom of the range. He's got to prove himself. Right. Whereas the non-person of color might come in. He knows the dealer (laughs) at that auto, who's our client, let's give them the top of the range. But like, because of the push of equity for women, for people of color, 
we now have to be transparent. And I'm so grateful for that because I think that was the biggest, like, oh my gosh, how low we are getting paid and how like we don't think about what the ripple effect of that is. Like I read this one article once about specifically people of color. We might be taking care, like you might be the first person in your family that's reached a certain level of not wealth, but you know, you're doing really well. And now you have to take care of some people behind you. Like that doesn't happen for whites. They are, you know, from a generational wealth perspective, you know, they're obviously all the generations ahead. So like even in those conversations, making sure that you are paid fairly and at mar- at least at market value, if not more, those are the conversations. But the conversations I also want to have is, well, if we are organically the culture, right? Like the stories that you've told me about, like when you have to go pitch and back in the day, you know, you'd bring certain music that, you know, because of the internet, you might not know, like how that is such organic culture, like shouldn't our media be paid, should be worth more? Like that's, those are the conversations that I hope that we can start to talk about. Because like, if it comes from us, you know, in the culture, I very much believe that popular culture right now is black American culture, the media dollars, you know, your labor, all of those things should be paid at a premium. I don't think that they should be paid, you know, less than. But that brings up a good point with this podcast. As we move forward, I'm hoping I think culturally our peers will be able to get stuff from it, young people coming up. But I'm hoping like a lot of non-Black people can tap in and get something, some insights, some new learnings from the conversations we're having. Because I do think that awareness goes a long way in changing things, both on the agency side and the client side. True. I also hope that you'll tell some funny stories and that people will bring us outrageous. I have no shortage of stories. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Real talk. Um, okay. Well, why don't you tell us what's the first time you went on a shoot? Like what was the first time you were just like completely like, this is exactly why I'm doing this job. Like what was the first time you were like just star eyes and like hard eyes? Well, actually it, it happened before I was in advertising. The summer of 92. And that was the, so the whole Rodney King thing, the verdict when they ride it in LA, that was like spring 92, right? So I think that happened in like March or April. I think April. I was in LA in May at like the beginning of May that year, right after my freshman year of college. And I went to work that summer as a PA. And it was a really, really wild time to be in LA. You could feel the the racial tension. I think there were places that were still like smoldering. It was a really crazy time. But just seeing the debris and the ash from around town and and all of that, Ice T Cop Killer was out at the time. Just 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 to frame this this crazy yeah summer. yeah set the scene. That was out at the time. I think I read a couple of books that had like really had a huge impact on me as far as like just my outlook in life. I read The Invisible Man and I know I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. So this is all happening <laughs> in my head and around me at the time I go out there. Besides all of that tension that was in the air, I actually, it was a really great trip for me. I got to be around a great diverse group of people. I got to meet a lot of people in the industry and everybody was super sweet to me. But as a PA, so a PA works for the production company, 
the production company is the company that an agency hires to fulfill a project to go out and produce a, an actual commercial. So the director works for that production company, agency hires a production company and the director, and they work together to get it across the finish line. As a PA for the production company, you are at the lowest of the low. So you are basically a gopher. You do whatever they tell you to do. One day you might be parking cars. Next day you might be doing cleanup work somewhere. This one shoot I had, we were shooting Honey Nut Cheerios commercial. And my job was to, they gave me like four or five boxes of Cheerios. And I had to pick out the perfect Cheerios and put them in a fishbowl. <laughs> no, really. Like I did that for like three hours. I just picked out the perfect ones. This is before they started shooting. And I'm just sitting over in the corner picking out. And then the props people came over there like, you done? And I'm like, yeah. And I had, there was this huge fishbowl full of perfect Cheerios and they had a scooper. And so the guy, I saw him, he took it. He took it right to set. He went in my fishbowl. He fished out a bowl full. And then they started shooting and they would pour like the, it was like a, I think it was like glue to give it the, the look like milk. It was thicker than normal milk, but it looked great on camera or whatever. Yeah. So I was like, oh, like I was learning the tricks and I was seeing it, but I was seeing how much work goes into those 30 seconds. And this isn't even the brain power work, you know, that the agency had done, which is tremendous as well. But like just to the actual physicality of putting things in place, lights and, you know, generators and all these moving parts just so you can capture these images. That For really 30 really seconds. That's the money right there. You really hit it on the head. You said not even the brain power from the agency before we get here. Yeah, this has nothing to do with strategy and all of this stuff. This is just the, the number of people to make this whole thing happen just blew me away. But I, after that, I knew I definitely didn't want to be on that side. I knew I wanted to be on the, <laughs> the way we catered to the agency people was crazy. So I knew I wanted to be on that side. Yeah, it was pretty eye-opening. Wow. Oh, my gosh. And we're going to talk to all those people that make that 30 seconds and more and more. And more. You know, yeah. the, the ripple effect from those 30 seconds, too, into the culture, yes. the music, Absolutely. the clothes, the fashion. For sure. Hey guys, this first episode, thank you for tuning in. We plan to really start to go deeper. This is just a little bit of an intro. Say what's up. So don't forget to uh, don't forget to subscribe and, and follow us. Thank you so much for listening. This is the Invisible Soldiers podcast. We'll catch you next time. Peace. <laughs>